week, the British Parliament held two important votes. The first one was on Brexit, and the second one was on the future of Prime Minister Theresa May's government. So the outcome of these two votes were diametrically opposed to each other, and it's thrown the UK political system into yet another crisis of its own making. We'll be breaking all of this down on this episode of Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, and I'm here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hello. Good day. All right. We're getting the fake British accent that's going to be terrible going early. I'm like, I'm really glad. Yes. Let's get that out of our system. Yes, get it completely out of the way. Okay. Everybody ready? So ready. Good, Jen. Then you get to start. Let's talk about the first vote. What exactly was the issue here? Right. So this first vote was the one specifically about Brexit. So it was about Theresa May's Brexit deal that she negotiated with the EU. This was the plan for how the UK is going to go about the terms of its divorce from the EU. And it was kind of like the worst version of the Goldilocks porridge story, right? So it wasn't super hot, meaning it wasn't the like hardcore, complete severing of the UK from the EU that the hard Brexiters really want. But it also wasn't totally cold either, meaning it wasn't either staying in the EU completely or like the super soft Brexit that still kept like a lot of the procedures and trade practices in place. So instead of being just right, it was basically wrong for everyone. It wasn't hot, it wasn't cold, and everyone hated the deal. I think there's a famous European politics expert who has a song just about this. Okay, I just, I, I think the you're in, then you're out thing, given being in and out of the EU right. and like Britain not being able to make up its mind as to how it wants to get out. Like, that's it's just perfect. very funny to me. And also, yay, Katy Perry, <laughs> who's, by the way, has a cat named Kitty Purry. <laughs> so this deal comes up for a vote, right? It has to go to the parliament because in order for the deal to actually go through, the UK parliament has to actually sign off on this deal. So Theresa May puts it up for a vote. And it fails spectacularly. It was just an epic defeat. It failed by like 230 votes, which was basically unheard of in like modern UK politics. All right. So everybody hated this deal. And then right after, pretty much immediately after, the leader of the opposition, the left-wing Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, he put in a motion of no confidence, basically a vote to kick May out of office. And that vote was held on Wednesday, the day after the Brexit vote. And what happened, Alex? She won in this plot twist. Yeah, she won. So, like, just to take a quick step back, let's remember this. She just went through, like, the worst defeat basically ever. Now there's a motion of, can you still lead this government? Which, in, like, any normal time, she'd be gone. Right. And yet, she won by a thin margin, but she won. She is still the prime minister of Britain. She has no mandate to step down whatsoever. And this is absolutely crazy to me. You're up, then you're down. You're in, then you're out, basically. Like she can't win and she can't lose, right? Like, yeah, it's effectively, I mean, the conservatives that voted against her, the conservatives from her own party that voted against her on Brexit voted to keep her in as leader. Right. And I mean, it it literally makes no sense because Brexit was May's defining issue. Like the entire reason she became prime minister was that she promised that she would get Brexit done. Like Brexit means Brexit. We're going to do this thing. That was her one promise. She has so far spectacularly failed to do so. And yet the whole, you know, at least the majority of the government thinks that she should still keep trying. Okay, so if May was defeated on her primary issue, but then 
basically got everybody to line up behind her, it raises an obvious question, which is why on earth would this set of circumstances come about? Right? So I think that one of the key parts is that her party controls parliament. That's why she's prime minister. Her party is split on Brexit. Some people are opposed. Some people are for the sort of moderate thing she proposed. And it seems like a lot of them just want a really hardcore Brexit. So that's why they voted against the deal. However, they also don't want Corbyn and the Labour Party in power. Right. So they're going to vote to keep her in office, even though they hate her signature policy, because it's better than the alternative, which they hate. And I think Alex's point that you briefly touched on a second ago, conservatives in her own party, they also don't want her job, right? Like, this is the shittiest job in the UK government right now. You have to go to the EU and beg them, like, on bended knee to, like, give you some more terms. Please, God, help us figure out this thing that we're doing that, like, is pissing off the whole EU. And, of course, they have no real incentive. They have little incentive, not no incentive, to really help her out because they don't want other people getting the wild idea that you can just do this anytime and leave the EU when you want. Nobody else in her party is like, yeah, I definitely want to go be Theresa May right now because this seems awesome for her. So, like, she's just kind of still there limping along even though uh, she's not really succeeding in anything she's doing. Yeah, I do wonder if there's a part of, like, the folks that voted her in that just, like, we know you're doing the best you can with this. Like, we know that this is a really impossible situation, and we kind of appreciate the effort you're doing. None none of us want to do it. Right. And, like, you know, go forth and do goodness. Because there is also the danger of you put someone else who has to, like, lead the charge of negotiations with a short timeline— and, like, who has to start from scratch? Like, in a way, you kind of wanted to. Yeah, yeah let's, right. let's talk about that timeline, actually. That's yes. important in terms of what comes next, right? Because there is a deadline on March 29th. That is when, by EU regulations, Britain gets kicked out of the EU, deal or no deal. And so they uh, they want to have something in place what, before how then. long? Like, 10 weeks from now? Yeah, like that? it's like, really not it, very It's long. just over 70 days. Right. And, so they, like, and they've spent months negotiating this deal, and it just went up in flames because the British Parliament wouldn't approve it, which means it is very unlikely that they get another negotiated deal in place by March 29th, which means basically there are three other options, right? Right. So what happens next? Right. So the first one is that they punt again and push the deadline back with the EU's agreement. The problem is— this deal was the best compromise that they could get to, and it's hard to imagine any kind of deal that everyone could agree on, even if they had, like, seven more months or whatever. Different parties in the EU have come out and said, yeah, like, this is the best you're going to get. Like, we're not going back to the drawing board here. We're not going to renegotiate this. And, you know, May was essentially banking on that, right? Like, she had this really kind of hardcore strategy going into this vote, which was like, Look, I don't have a plan B, you guys. Like, there's no other option. It's this deal or no deal. And then they said, okay, well, we don't want this deal. And now she's like, uh, shit. Right? So Th- Then there's the second option, which is March 29th, just leave, right? Get out of the UK. We've talked about this before on the show, so we don't need to summarize it too much. But basically, it would throw the entire British legal, political, and economic system into chaos because the entire thing is deeply integrated into the EU. The Bank of England projects that the hit to the British economy could be worse than the Great Recession, and it would be entirely the UK government's fault if there were no deal. Right, exactly. Wrap your head around that. I'm not an economist, but that sounds bad. It's very bad. Right, right. I usually skipped the economics Economics? Economics. Well, that's, yeah. economics. you probably should have gone to I'm economics class. Very, a very good economics expert. Okay, that's going in the show jokes. That's totally fine. So there's a third option, though, right, that's going on, which is also pretty controversial, which is 
a second referendum. Essentially, Brexit do-over, oopsies, let's try this again. And the basic argument, and it's gaining popularity among a lot of people, uh, not everyone, the idea is like, look, yes, we had this referendum the first time that we decided to Brexit. Two years into this, all this time later, we've now seen the chaos that this could cause. We now have a lot more information. The original story we were told by the pro-Leave campaign has been shown to be largely bullshit. What if we just said, okay, now we get a second referendum. Let's try again. Is this something we still want? And there are a lot of people who think that that is like a fair democratic solution or option. There are also a lot of people who think that that is wildly undemocratic, right? Me! So I wouldn't say it's wildly undemocratic, but it is undemocratic-ish in the sense that the British people already voted on this. We can debate whether they were duped into it, whether they didn't know the full things. We can debate but that. But they were. They literally were. The next day, after the referendum, one of the main promises of the Leave campaign was exposed as a lie. They admitted it wasn't true. Right. Okay. I under- Let Alex finish. I understand that. But they still voted, right? And they voted, and there's a, there are consequences to elections. At some point, you have to try the thing that the people voted for. I know it's non-binding, but they haven't even delivered what the people wanted delivered. Maybe deliver it, then see it go badly, and then have the vote again if you want a second referendum. I don't, I don't understand the logic there, right? Like, if something became unpopular in the course of trying to accomplish it because people came to recognize the reality, it seems like they followed through on the democratic promise of the initial referendum, which is we will try to leave the EU. And when it became clear that it would be a mess, I think it would be ridiculous to say the only democratic thing to do is to shoot ourselves in the face. But the re- was the referendum about try to leave the EU or leave the EU? I don't think that that is a particularly meaningful distinction from the standpoint of democratic theory. But I think it is to a lot of voters in the UK. And so, you know, I was listening to the BBC doing some reporting and they interviewed this British woman who supported leaving the EU about whether she would be okay with holding a second referendum. To me, if I voted, that's my decision. If somebody then comes back to me and says, well, actually, that vote's not going to work for us, so we're going to do it again... Why would I vote again? And, you know, I also heard a conservative, you know, member of parliament basically saying the same thing. Like, look, yeah, you know, some of my constituents, a lot of them voted to actually stay in the EU. Like, my job is to deliver for the country. And they voted for Brexit. And that is my job as an elected member of parliament to deliver on this thing. And that is the the democratic argument against a second referendum. So worth noting, though, that according to the most recent Britain-elect's polling average, a majority of British citizens would vote to stay in the EU this time around, right? And the number's been trending upward for a while now. So it seems like a lot of Britons would be really okay with this. Right. So here's the thing. As of right now, we don't know what's going to happen. But the next step, concretely, is that on Monday, Theresa May has to go to Parliament and present her plan B. Now, remember, I said a little bit earlier in the show, she has been saying all along she does not have a plan B. Now, whether that was just a hardball tactic to try to force people, like, look, it's this my deal or nothing, or whether she literally, after two years, does not have any kind of plan B, we're about to find out. She was talking after the first vote about what she would do next. She said, uh, roughly speaking, she says things like, all right, we'll have this vote, the no confidence vote about her staying in government. And if that works and I stay in power, then I'll start meeting with people to talk about what we do next. The government will approach these meetings in a constructive spirit. But given... (laughs) 
But given, given the need, urgent need to make progress, we must focus on ideas that are genuinely negotiable. Right. So just to be clear what you just heard, Theresa May is up there being very earnest Theresa May and saying, okay, next steps, the government is going to start meeting with people and approach it in a constructive spirit. And like half the parliament starts laughing and jeering her because... Really? Parliament's so much cooler than Congress, just to be very clear. Yeah. Honestly, if we had that kind of like raucous caucus, if you will, (laughs) in the U.S. Congress, it would be so much more fun instead of everyone just sitting there quietly. The Brits just shout crazy stuff at each other the whole time, and it's fantastic. Don't touch the mace. But clearly, like, the point here is that not everyone seems to think that this is going to go so well. Part of the reason that Parliament was was jeering at her is it's kind of ridiculous to say they'll approach the meetings with a constructive spirit because her argument the whole time has been it's my deal or no deal. And that's a pretty, well, it's basically literally a my way or the highway argument. And it, everyone seems to think her plan B, what she's going to talk about on Monday, is just let's vote again on my deal. Wait, so we're to do it over again. Wait, so we're going to go back to square one next week, possibly. Yeah, the same thing that happened this Tuesday where everybody voted down her bill is likely to happen again next week. So basically, her plan B right now is like literally, as far as we could tell, plan A with the title scribbled out and written plan B on top of it, right? (laughs) Like she's going to be like, let's go back and vote again because two thirds of the parliament voting against my bill was totally a squeaker. So let's totally reconsider this. I'm sure it's going to go differently next time. Amazing. Zach, you had a a really interesting piece on Vox.com basically saying that it's not really Theresa May's fault in a sense, right? And yeah. that she was, like, set up to fail, basically. Look, look I, I don't want to be, like, an apologist for Theresa May. Nobody thinks she's handled the situation well. She's not an especially effective negotiator. She's a really bad public communicator. That being said, there's no way that, that you could expect anybody, no matter how competent, to come out well here. Why? But, well, the problem is that the terms that the EU would accept— were fundamentally in tension with what the Brexiteers wanted. They promised a painless exit from the EU, one with basically no economic costs, one in which the UK would be able to seize back control of all of its laws that would slash immigration, get more money for its healthcare system. The EU wants literally none of that. Well, the healthcare system thing was just a straight-up lie. There was no way that was going to happen. The other things, though, the EU is not going to just let them slash immigration quotas and get out of EU rules while still maintaining full access to EU markets. It's just not going to happen. It's never going to happen. Have your cake and eat it too, essentially is what they wanted. There was no porridge that was just right. (laughs) Okay, I'm not sure I believe what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Oh no, that's never a good sign. (laughs) Which is basically like, let's again recap real fast. Theresa May proposed like the most significant bill almost in the history of the UK, and it failed miserably in historical terms. And she got to keep her job. Right. Like that, whether it was intentional or not, is an amazing piece of political skill in a weird, like in a really weird way. As as Jen mentioned earlier, she was for Remain before she became prime minister. There are debates about whether or not she meant it, but let's put that aside. You could almost imagine this scenario where like in her head, she went, okay, well, I don't want Brexit to be true. So I'm going to go ahead and and like negotiate for months, and it's going to be hell. And then I'm going to put out a deal that no one wants, and they're going to vote me down. But because no one wants my job— They're going to keep me in, and then, like, the chances of no Brexit, even slightly, will go up, and maybe I get what I want all along. Like, I don't know. I don't buy it as well, but, like, it is kind of interesting to think that there's there was almost this, like, master plan at work. No, no, And and either way, like, the fact is that 
after all of this, she is still in power. She did just survive a no-confidence vote. She is the one who is going to continue to guide Britain into the unknown future. And for for good or ill, she will go down in the history books as being one of the most consequential leaders in British history. Like, she's Teflon, man. I gotta give her credit. Or just an incompetent figurehead as the country sails into the abyss. It could be also one that. it could yeah. be one or the also other. That. Either a super genius or a massive incompetent. <laughs> it's only one of two. I, I, and I have she's my hot back. or she's cold. All right, look, after the break, we're going to continue our music series, a theme today, with a song from one of my favorite bands that helps explain some of the deeper social trends that got Britain into this mess. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, welcome back. So this week, we are continuing our series on music from around the world that's telling and significant about the place where it comes from. Today, we're going to talk about a British indie pop song that actually has a lot to say about growing social divisions inside Western societies. So to start, the song is called The Fall of Home. It's by Los Campesinos, a band that formed in Wales and one of my, probably honestly, my personal favorite band. I've seen them live more times than I can count. But let's start by listening to the song. So if you don't speak English, what they're saying there <laughs> is battery dies on your monthly call. Monthly? Budget cut at your primary school, which I believe here in America means elementary school? Yes, that's right. Look, it, the the meaning behind the lyrics here, right, what's, what's going on is a conversation about the state of British society and, in some ways, the larger West after the financial crisis. Right, the economy, too, right? Right, After austerity. Right. So budget cuts to your primary school reflect the fact that social services have been slashed as part of austerity programs in response to the financial crisis. I think the key lyric here is gave the fascists a thousand ticks. Now, who in the What UK does a thousand tick mean? Votes. That means votes okay, at the ballot box. Me, I think of ticks like the bugs, and I was like, why would you give them ticks? That's weird. No, like tick marks Got on it. a ballot. Got it. And now, who might that be referring to in the United Kingdom? I'm going to guess the Brexiteers. 
Yeah, probably this I'm band. I throw out Nigel Farage. Right. I know that this band hates the Tory Party, the Conservatives. So it could be them, but more likely it's the United Kingdom Independence Party, UKIP, which was the driving force behind Brexit, the sort of third party that is really hardcore nativist, anti-immigrant, and stuff like that. Brexit seemed to be more popular in rural communities more so than in cosmopolitan centers, and just by the lyrics of the song that seemed to imply that they're talking about more, like, rural communities. Right. That's No, that's the division the song is picking up on, right? Like, Los Campesinos is a band that has traveled around the world. They've recorded their albums in the U.S. and Portugal. What does Los Campesinos mean? It's the peasants in Spanish. Oh, I don't I, know. exactly know why they picked it, being oh. a British band, but— as I was saying, they're a band that has been in a lot of different places, uh, and the song reflects the fact that rural communities in the UK are, are different and in, alienated from these people like them who feel comfortable in cities around the world, in different places, in, in these cosmopolitan environments, and feel distinct and separate from small town, England, Wales, Scotland, which has become increasingly conservative and insular. It sounds like a reverse country song in a weird sense. Like Instead of the virtues of the small town, it's how sad the small towns yeah. have become and how yeah. sad it is to be alienated from it. It's not clear to me whether or not the song reflects like their actual biography, like that the character is in the song is actually the story of the lead singer. Right. Fair, but, yeah. but it's it, a story they're telling. Yeah. And it's a story that has like really broad resonance, not just in Britain, but in the US, uh, where rural urban divides were a massive, massive indicator of Republican versus Democratic support in the last election, and in other Western countries where populists on the right have their biggest support base in rural communities. So I just think it's really fascinating that this deep social divide that we've talked about a number of times on the show as a major driver of political behavior, that it's becoming so well-known and so significant culturally that bands and artists are starting to remake their work around it. Like, it's bleeding into to pop culture and music and art in a way that's going beyond, like, standard political divides. We're going to leave it there today. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, who always works for magic on the show. And by the way, who also just happens to think that a second referendum is super democratic and was shaking her head the entire time going, just do it. We encourage all of you to email in with your Brexit hot takes or any other thoughts that you have at worldly at vox.com and rate, subscribe, review the podcast uh, wherever you listen to it. Thanks so much. And that's it for us. 